Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very pleased to share the conversation I had with Michael Muthukrishna. Michael is the Associate Professor of Economic Psychology at the London School of Economics. He's also affiliated with Developmental Economics Group at STI Curd. He's also affiliated with Data Science Institute, Fellow at Charter Cities Institute, board member of One Pencil Project, uh, technical director of the Database of Religious History, uh, and many others. And he is uh, mostly interested in uh, different questions, big, big questions. Why are humans different to other animals? Psychological evolutionary processes for culture and social change. And how we can answer those questions um, uh, in, in different ways and using computational modeling, uh, using different types of evolutionary models, that in various data science methods from psychology and economics. He is the author of the latest book, Theory of Everyone, the new science of who we are, how we got here, and where we're going. Um, that title might be a little bit different in the uh, uh, kind of out in the rest of the world with the U- U.S. editions. There's always these kind of different, slightly different titles everywhere. But the main title is A Theory of Everyone. Um, and we talk about the book. Uh, the book is, is fantastic. I, I greatly enjoyed it. We start out by talking on why he wrote a book that's so broad sweeping. You don't call a book a theory of everyone, and it's not you know, very, very broad. So he talks about that. Uh, we talk about theory and theoretical frameworks and why that's necessary. We talk about energy. It's a big part, especially the first half of the book, uh, how energy is essential in cooperation. We talk about corruption in, in cooperation, dark sides of cooperation, how cooperation fueled uh, human growth and innovation. Talk about the kind of laws of life he details in the book. Uh, we talk about intelligence. We have a nice kind of exchange about intelligence. We don't uh, see eye to eye on some of that. So that was a lot of fun. And some of the cultural factors. Talk about immigration issues, wealth inequality, meritocracy, and many, and many other uh, topics. Uh, Michael was was such a delight. I, I it was one of those conversations where I didn't want it to end. Uh, I wanted to keep going, could have kept going for, you know, another two, three hours. Um, we just, we got on well together and he's just someone that you want to bounce ideas off of and, and talk about things and, you know, kind of unravel things. And so he's, he's absolutely great. Um, I really did enjoy his book. I really enjoyed this conversation. I, I hope listeners will as well. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergentdialogues.substack.com. Get over there, subscribe, like. Uh, share with friends. You also can uh, contribute as well. I'm also on YouTube um, and uh, in all the places where you find your podcast. So now I bring you Michael Luther Christian. I am here with Michael Luther Krishna. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, I've been really looking forward to uh, to talking with you in this conversation. So uh, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on. Me too. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I, I love the questions that you sent me before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you, you wrote a you wrote a fantastic book, um, which I, I I've uh, enjoyed reading it. And uh, I've been hearing rumblings from other people that have been getting it. I know this is out in a few countries already. And so people have been really enjoying it. And I had a few people ask me, like, are you going to get them on? I was like, yeah, 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 we're, we're, he's going to come on. So this some people are very much looking forward to the conversation as, as am I. So 
you've written a fabulous book called A Theory of Everyone, Who We Are, How We Got Here, and Where We're Going. Uh, so before we get into all the details of the book, uh, why don't you tell listeners uh, who you are professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently up to? Sure. So uh, I'm a professor at the London School of Economics. Uh, my official title is economic psychologist, but I have affiliations with uh, Stickers Developmental Economics and with Data Science. Um, I guess I kind of have a, a an unusual disciplinary background. So my undergrad was actually in engineering, and I did a dual degree uh, with with psychological and behavioral science. But I kind of took a lot of different subjects, and my goal was to kind of apply that to engineering design. Uh, and then in grad school, I worked with uh, with Joe Henrik, who, who many people know. Uh, Joe was cross appointed in in psychology and economics, and so I kind of cr- took courses in both of those. And then I worked with people like Michael Dobley, uh, took courses in evolutionary biology, uh, in data science and statistics, and then uh, moved to Harvard's human evolutionary biology department before I took on my current role. So all, all of that kind of is reflected in the book. I think readers will see. Uh- I was just going to say, so yeah, you're, you're well primed to, to, to talk about in all of these different kind of sectors. I think you mentioned it a few places in the book too. I guess just before we get to the specifics, why did you want to write such a, you know, very broad sweeping book and, and talk about all of these different things? You stuff, you know, evolutionary theory <laughs> of cooperation, you have physics, you have some biology, you got everything in there. Why did you want to tackle uh, some of the the things that you tackle in such a big, big uh, abstract way, but also with a lot of details in there as well. Why, why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is it's kind of a narrow title. Like it could have been like a theory of everything. This is just everyone. So it's a it's a bit more <laughs> circumscribed. Sure. No, I'm kidding. Right. No, so I mean, one one piece of advice that uh, I got in my career is don't write a book because you know I don't know you just want to write a book or it feels like that moment in your career you should write it because it's kind of bursting out of you, right? Like, it's almost like mm. you can't not write the book. And, and that's really how it felt. So, you know, I think probably for the last, I don't know, let's say five years, I've been wanting to write it. And I was kind of, it was, it was bursting out of me. Um, I felt like all of these discussions and debates were happening in the world around energy, around uh, inflation, uh, around immigration, um, and, and I felt like, you know, the work that I'd been doing and the reason that I kind of got into this field, moved from engineering here, uh, we had answers to this. In fact, we had different ways of even asking the question. And so it was frustrating. I and mean, I think it was when I got, you know, tenure a few years back that I had the space to just sit down and get it out there. Um, you know, in, in, terms of, um, in terms of all of the disciplines that come to, to play there, uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of terms like multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary because it seems to like put the emphasis on, you know, you have to take these things from other places. So my, my preferred term is like non-disciplinary or undisciplined, you know? So the idea is that you've got these questions and you want to answer them in, in a way that is as convincing as it can be to yourself and then hopefully to other people. And it doesn't really matter where the tools you bring to bear on the question come from. Like maybe they're in economics, maybe they're in evolutionary biology, maybe uh, they're in political science, whatever. They, they, wherever they are, it doesn't really matter as long as they're convincing tools and they can be used sometimes in conjunction with each other. Um, what I wanted to explain to people, because I want, because this was frustrating me and I could see all of these uh, these problems that had solutions, partial solutions, great solutions, um, solutions that ought to be discussed more and more, I wanted to kind of write a book that explained this theory of everyone, this moment that we that I felt we were in the human and social sciences. And then show people how it could help us tackle many of the problems that we face today 
that in my view, there's just a lot of like wiggle switch science going on. So wiggle switch science is this idea that, you know, you got a confusing world and you do these AB tests basically on it. You know, Mm -hmm. like, what if we present the information like this? What if the social network looks like this? What if, and you can't really make progress in that way. There's no way to accumulate that knowledge. You know, I had a, um, it was actually the conclusion to my dissertation, but a paper I wrote uh, a while ago uh, called The Problem in Theory uh, with, with Joe Henrik, where I lay this out and I say, you know, all of, all of these concerns you have about replication and fraud or whatever, they're not just about statistical shenanigans and, you know, methodological malpractice. They are fundamentally the way that you are approaching these questions about humans and about the social world. Mm-hmm. Is, is is strange. It, it, no other science would, would see this or understand what was happening here. There was no way to accumulate this. At best, you're, you're working on these mini theories that don't really talk to each other. And I saw this even, you know, when I, um, I, I was really frustrated as an undergrad in psychology, because I was like, this is, this is the most interesting question that you could be trying to tackle. And yet all of these tools exist in other sciences that you're not bringing to bear. And I don't understand why. Um, and you're talking about things like stereotypes, and then you're talking about things like norms, and somehow these two things are not connected. Like, why is influence and persuasion two separate things? Like, this doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's fine. It's fine that you've got a problem. It's nice to admire the problem. It's better if you have a, a solution. And I think that that is the moment. The claim, the central claim of the book is that a science matures into a real science. It goes through puberty. It only really becomes a science. When it reaches this point where it has this overarching theoretical framework that allows it to separate sense from nonsense, and it allows it to turn science into technology, it allows you to actually act in the world with some amount of confidence. So, you know, so I think, you know, the oldest of the sciences, let's say physics, right? Like we, the world used to be chaotic and confusing, right? We used to think that Thor was banging his hammer and all of the things that happened were the, were the, were the result of these capricious gods. And then people like Newton uh, and Einstein and Maxwell, they come along and they write down equations and they make sense. They turn that chaos and confusing world into something that is understandable. It's not always predictable. So, you know, uh, the weather is still difficult to predict, but at least we now know it's not Thor. Uh, we understand how it works. And it's, it's really not about like the brilliance of the scientists. So Sir Isaac Newton himself is trying to turn lead into gold because that revolution hadn't happened in the chemical world. Like we were in a world of alchemy. Now you can make a lot of progress in with alchemy. Like we we made gunpowder. Uh, we made you know we realized that when you mix an acid with a particular metal, you get a gas. Like we could do stuff like that, but it wasn't obvious without a periodic table and an understanding that the world was made out of atoms and elements that you can't actually turn lead into gold without you know a star, let's say, or uh, a large super collider. But once you have that, then alchemy becomes chemistry. And you go, oh, these are the pieces that are actually missing. I can actually eventually get to things like protein folding. And biology was the same way, right? Like we used to think that, uh, like it was, it was why, why does the peacock have this giant elaborate tail? And why is the peahen a drab brown? And why do some animals lay eggs and others have live births? It's chaotic. Who knows what's going on here? And then Darwin comes along and eventually the modern synthesis with uh, Wright and Fisher writing down the equations, working it out. And now... We understand it's still difficult to predict the trajectory of a species. It's still difficult to predict an ecology, but an ecologist without the rules of evolutionary biology would be running blind. Like you can't infer those rules by measuring, you know, the water and the foxes and the squirrels. And so you can't, you can't get it out of the system. You need that theory. Without that theory, you're stuck doing things like, okay, well, the planet was there last time. So maybe it's going to be there again. 
what you need is a science of orbital, orbital mechanics, right? Anyway, so so that's great. And I and, and the claim, the central claim, as I said in the book, is that this has happened in the human and social sciences. And as people are exposed to it, they're excited and they can begin to use it in their in their own work. So you have like, you know, um, biologists like Kevin Leyland, you've got uh, uh, economists like Nathan Nunn, um, who are beginning to integrate this into their into their work, into their worldview, and, and, and it's making some interesting progress. Mm. So that's that's one part of it, just this frustration and wanting to get it out there. The second part of it was that it matters, right? Like getting these answers right, understanding the world in a way that we can act on it matters because as I say in the book, the 21st century might be the most important century in human history. And there's a, there, there's a number of reasons why, uh, but one particular reason is actually to do with our energy budgets and energy control. And, you know, some, some social scientists in particular was like, said to me, and it's like that, I was not expecting that in the book. Uh, it was like, where, did, where exactly did that come from? Um, but it makes a lot of sense in terms of you, you'll, you'll see when you read the book, it really makes a lot of sense in terms of what I study, which is human cooperation. So, you know, one of the, one of the puzzles that I'm in, so I, I got in this field cause I wanted to understand how we would tackle some of the problems around climate change, for example. Right. Uh, it seemed to me when I was, you know, finishing undergrad that everybody was so focused on mitigation and I was like, okay, great. Maybe we'll slow the economy to save the planet. But what if we don't? Uh, do we know how to handle like a million people from Bangladesh or the South Pacific, you know, let's say from Bangladesh flooding into India or, and then into Pakistan and then into the Middle East and Europe? Like, do we know how to handle that many people? How, do we know how to maintain governance un under those conditions? Do we know how to handle the cultural clash? Do we know how to handle infrastructure? Do we know any of this? We don't have a science. We don't have an ability to deal with that in the way that we do the physical sciences. And this was this was you know the part of this puzzle is how is it that do how is it that humans cooperate in the first place like how is it that you and I from different places in the world from completely different ancestries we could have done this call in the same room right mm -hmm. and that that is kind of weird right like if we were two chimps uh, we'd be like two dead and maimed chimps we'd be you know at each other's yeah. throats if we were strangers mm -hmm. and you know even two hundred years ago this would be kind of a weird thing right like. Um, we would we would probably not trust each other because we weren't cooperating at this kind of anonymous, multi-ethnic, large uh, you know scale that we do today, and even in some places around the world, like oh yeah, we could we could totally do this in the United States, but could we do it in the Democratic Republic of Congo, like in Australia? Yeah, but Afghanistan, like you know, there are places where even today. So this puzzle is um, is so puzzling that you know in, in two thousand and five, Science Magazine listed. How is it that cooperation evolved is one of its top 25 big questions for the coming quarter century. It's been a while. 2005 to me feels like yesterday, but my students mm -hmm. tell me yeah. that was roughly when they were born or something. I know. Um, it's, it's, it's a strange, it was, it was a, a long time ago. And, you know, we, we have made, we've made a lot of progress since then and, uh, and, and before then, too. And we've begun to understand the mechanisms that allow cooperation to work, to flourish, right? Why is it that um, people... And other animals will work uh, at a, and not always defect, and will work together for mutual benefit. So, you know, some of the mechanisms that have been identified are things like um, inclusive fitness and kin selection. So, this we find across the animal kingdom. Um, genes that can identify and favor copies of themselves will spread at the expense of those that don't, according to kind of Hamilton's rule, where the relatedness times benefit. As long as that's greater than the cost, then that should that should spread. So, you know, you might hear sometimes if you, you know, uh, 
love is a mystery. Like, who can explain the bonds of family? Actually, we can explain it really well. It's not a mystery at all. Um, then you can get a little further because that only that would limit you to cooperation with related individuals, which is what humans did. We had bands of related individuals. But we we went a lot further than that. So you can go further with direct reciprocity, sometimes called reciprocal altruism. So this is the idea of you scratch my back, I scratch yours, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And um, this gets you to the level of people that you regularly interact with. So you might not like all your office mates, but you'll learn to like them because it's mutual benefit, right? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You screw me over, I screw you over. As long as we are you know, have repeated encounters, it's fine. That's why con men can come in and then leave again because they're not part of that system. They're just acting like they are. That gets you to people you know and regularly interact with. Then you can go a little further with reputation. So I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am, but I know all of you. And therefore, I might be willing to work with you because I heard that Joe Henrik was on the show and he says, if he's a good guy, like you should, you know, you should definitely work with him. Um, so status and reputation are very important for trying to understand how do we cooperate with people we're less closer to for, for exactly. It's like, exactly. As long as you know, all of people, then you can, and if you trust the reputational information, you might be able to, to work with them. And, you know, actually you can see the limits of this when we overcame it. Um, so, you know, when, when you and I were kids, uh, your parents probably told you never get in a car with a stranger, never go to a stranger's house, right? Avoid the white bands. <laughs> yeah, with the white men. If, if someone's offering you candy, come home. I got candy at home, you know. Um, it, but I, I actually get in. You know, I'm, I'm not a kid anymore. But I, I could probably send my kid in a car with a stranger. And sometimes the whole family sleeps in someone else's house. Why? Because of companies like Uber and Airbnb. Mm-hmm. And that is a reputational system. But it is a securitized reputational system mm-hmm. where, as long as we trust the institution, or in this case, the, the company, the corporation then we can, you know, they do the management of the reputation for us. We don't have to trust the accuracy. And if, if you get bad reviews and the, and the signal just starts to deteriorate, the, the same dynamics apply. Great. Now we're up to people we know of, but even there, there's a limit. Mm-hmm. If you ask economists, you know, like, how do you get cooperation in the kind of scales we find today? They'll say it's institutions. And they're right, of course, right? Like, so I, when people, if somebody steals something from me, I'm typically not like, um, <laughs> what's the line, you know? I have a certain set of skills and I'm coming to get you. Like, you know, I'm not going after these people uh, directly. I pay my taxes to, uh, for a police force and a judiciary and a court system and governments and so on. And they do the punishing for me. Great. Seems like we've solved it. We now have this institution. So there's a couple of puzzles there. One is how do you get from a reputational based system to an institution system? And people have implicated things like religion as a proto institution. So the idea is that you know, maybe you are a hijabi woman and I'm a hijabi woman and we know what beliefs are associated with that. And even though we don't know anything about each other, we don't even know all of each other, we're slightly more likely to trust each other. And then the institution can build from there. The systems like that. That's one puzzle. But the other puzzle is if you've ever traveled, you've ever lived in other parts of the world, then you know that institutions don't work equally well everywhere, mm-hmm. right? They are often undermined and they're typically undermined by what we call corruption. And, you know, so my, my family's from Sri Lanka. I left when, you know, when I was like two years old. I, I grew up in Botswana. I've lived in Papua New Guinea. I've lived in Australia. I've lived in, you know, Canada, the United States, and now the UK. And I can see, and I've traveled a lot, I can see that these institutions and the, the degree to which they survive varies considerably. Mm-hmm. And from a Western weird, you know, in the Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic sense, people are like, I need to explain corruption. Like, why is it that these places are corrupt? From my perspective, corruption is super easy to explain. 
We don't need to explain corruption. What we need to explain is why some places are not corrupt. That's what's puzzling. Because what we call corruption is actually those lower scales of cooperation undermining the higher scales. So like if a, if a, if a president were to give a contract to his son, we go, oh, that's nepotism. But it's also inclusive fitness or kin selection undermining the institution. If a manager would give a job to a friend or a friend of a friend, uh, we call that cronyism. Mm -hmm. But it's also direct or indirect reciprocity, just like lobbying and bribery, undermining the meritocracy. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So that's that was you know one of my contributions to the literature, and then then I started thinking. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If these if all of these scales are always present, and the lower order scales are in fact more natural, found across the animal kingdom, and at least some of them are more stable. Than these higher scales and how the hell did we get here like how did we get to this world where anonymous strangers can meet one another that needs an, another explanation mm-hmm. and so i began to you know i began to think about the problem i was staring at these models we were working through some of the, the math and i was like you know what it needs it needs something to that allows you to transition between these scales because quite often uh, what what ends up happening is that countries are trapped in suboptimal equilibria right so uh, in, in many countries, uh, like, for example, many Latin American countries uh, suffer from a lot of nepotism, right? Mm-hmm. It's not surprising. You know, when uh, uh, la familia es tuto, you know, when, like, family is everything, then everyone is behaving in that way from the, the local shopkeeper to the person who has to, you know, has obligations to help you find the job, the government minister who uh, is, you know, is, is, is handing out favors to friends and family. The problem is that the normative pillars, the cultural pillars that uphold those invisible aspects of culture that uphold our institutions aren't present, right? So that's part of it. So if you can suppress those lower order scales, then you get things that work. So, you know, I started doing some, um, some reading into the, into the corruption literature at the same time, uh, you know, Joe Henrik and uh, uh, Jonathan Bocamp and um, uh, Jonathan Schultz and Duman Rod. Um, they were working, um, they were working on uh, what was going on with the Catholic church in Europe. And the role that the Catholic Church had in, you know, this is Joe's uh, book, sorry, The Weirdest People in the World, and, and, and there was a science paper associated with this. When the Catholic Church bans cousin marriage and engages mm-hmm. in a bunch of practices, mm-hmm. it destroys European tribes. There was something because where it was, places, it, was, it was higher in Sicily and southern Italy, and it was lower in the northern part or something like that. There was some, some correlation with certain regions or something. I can't quite remember. Exactly. So you can, yeah, exactly. So what they show is that when you look at the bishoprics where the, you know, these bishops were, mm-hmm. At the time that they were there, the longer they experienced this kind of destroying of the European tribes, the more successful their democracies are today, um, you know, the, the lower their corruption levels and so on, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what seems to have happened is, so in many places around the world, tribalism is a problem. Tribalism undermines states. Like when I was in Papua New Guinea, you know, they had what they would call a one-talk system. Every one-talk is in pidgin, like one-talk, like one language. People operated at that scale, Right. And that undermined institutions. They had the same institutions that Australia had, Westminster parliamentary institutions brought from Britain, but they were, compl- they were very unsuccessful. Because when you're marrying your cousins, then your uncle isn't just your uncle, he's connected to you by all of these connections and obligations. And so you can scale up your cooperation via kin selection or inclusive fitness to the point where it's undermining states, right? Mm. So that's one part of the puzzle. You, you, know, you can suppress these lower order scales. But the other part is that when we write down these models, we design them as dilemmas, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's only interesting if like it, it's better for me to work by myself than it is to cooperate. Otherwise, there's no paper to be written, right? It's like, oh, we set up the, we set up the payoff so it always pays to cooperate. Cool. 
But it's also possible that in the real world, we do exist in positive sum situations. There may be things that turn the world positive sum. And so when I was looking for things that might actually do this, I realized there's only really one thing that might have happened and that makes a lot of sense. And as I looked at the data and, and fitted against uh, you know, levels of cooperation, it, it made perfect sense. And that is energy control. And there's a particular metric in the energy sciences called the energy return on investment. So this is the amount of energy it takes to get some amount of energy back. You can think of it as like a metric of excess energy. And excess energy is what multiplies your efforts, right? Like Winston Churchill says, a man you know, who uses coal to do his work and multiply his efforts by 10 to 100 times or whatever. And, you know, he's, he's pointing out that nuclear can do much, uh, much more than that. Because you think about anything that you do, you know, doing your washing, uh, traveling across the globe, even the food you eat, the amount of work that would be required to do that using human labor or, or animal labor with those kinds of energy return on investments, it wouldn't feed the population that we have today, right? Um, not only is it like fossil fuel tractors, but we literally take natural gas and combine it with nitrogen in the air to create ammonia with the Haber-Bosch process. And roughly at least 4 billion people are alive today thanks to that, right? So if you look across like all of human history, there were these key um, moments that were kind of energy revolutions that truly multiplied our productivity, our population sizes, and created temporarily at least a world of abundance. So the first one for human, and, and incidentally, the book starts with like non-life to bacteria mm -hmm. and shows how these, these laws, so I call them laws of life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm very clear in the book, like I call them laws of life because they are, they apply from bacteria to businesses, from cells to societies. They are truly fundamental, but they're not like Newtonian laws. They're more like lenses with which you can view the world. They are the essential levers, the things that really matter. So they are like the law of energy that ultimately what makes matter alive is energy and what life is doing is competing over energy. The law of innovation. So when you can do more with less, you will do that. There's, there's a ceiling created by the law of energy and a floor created by the law of innovations, which creates more efficiency. And within that is what I call the space of the possible. If you shoot up the ceiling because you've got high excess energy, there's larger space that encourages greater cooperation. So single cells becoming multicellular, you know, complex multicellular, eventually animals. If you're an animal and you're spending more time uh, hunting than you're getting back in calories, you will be outcompeted by lower scales of cooperation like bacteria and cancers or by other animals who have greater energy, right? And that is, I'll get to this in a second, but that is the story of colonialization, actually. So let's start, let's start with fire, though. So fire was the first unlocking of energy. So one of the, one of the, most, one of the best pieces of evidence for uh, the fact that we are a species entirely reliant on culturally transmitted information is the fact that our jaws are too weak, our guts are too short, and we have giant energy-intensive brains that require cooked food. Like if you're a raw foodist, uh, you're going to need a lot of supplements and more food than you can possibly produce for yourself. What cooking does is it, it pre-digests food and makes it more bioavailable for you, which means you need, to, you need to be able to cook and you need to be able to make fire. And neither of those things, as you can ask any college student, there's no genes for cooking. And, uh, you know, there's not even genes for fire, right? You can't do that. Uh, and yet, so we need that. This is something that had to be transmitted. But once we had that, once we reliably were able to transmit fire making or even fire keeping, so sometimes you would just keep an ember alive, then we were able to cook food and we were able to support those giant brains of ours because brain tissue is 20 times as expensive as muscle tissue. And most animals invest in brawn than brain. 
All right, let me keep going. The second major unlocking of energy was agriculture. So this was, again, a solar technology. Rather than expending a lot of energy going out and hunting and gathering and all of that excess energy, sorry, all of that energy you spend walking around uh, has to be paid back in the return. You just, you plant in one place, you begin to, uh, to have animals that you're growing and they can help you do work as long as you're producing enough food to feed you and your family. And there's a large amount of excess energy to the point where our populations grew very large. We were actually unhealthier at first compared to the hunter-gatherers around them, but our populations grew large enough that we began to push out hunter-gatherers to the margins where they still live. So hunter-gatherers tend to live these days in deserts or very thick forests because that's where agriculturalists push them to. That eventually, at first, this is a world of abundance because you've got this new technology that allows you to grow, but then eventually abundance turns to scarcity Mm -hmm. because agriculturalists are now fighting with other agriculturalists, incentivizing warfare and technology and so on. After agriculture, the next major unlocking of energy that really created the modern world was the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. So in the Industrial Revolution, we found a bunch of stored sunlight in the ground in the form of black peat turned to, to black rock coal. And, you know, zooplankton and algae turned to oil and natural gas. This was photosynthesis turning to chemical form compressed by millions of years into dense transportable batteries and it supercharged everything that we could possibly do. Human ingenuity went through the roof. And, you know, if you look at, if you look at any graph of human progress, right, like um, uh, child, you know, child survival rates, uh, size of polities, uh, technological advancement, you know, population size, any, of the, any metric you want, right? Um, all of those things that you learned about in school is, that were kind of important, like the fall of the Roman Empire, the Black Death in Europe, um, the scientific revolution, the Renaissance, uh, the Enlightenment, blips. These are blips. They're, they're not even noticeable. There was a one-to-one return on your time with a few mechanical innovations and, you know, fire. It was in the moment when we turned those and we were able to supercharge those with the stored sunlight that everything really takes off. And if you look at the graph, it just hockey sticks up off into the sky on the back of cheap and available batteries, excess energy like we'd never seen before. Okay. So... You know, and, and this is the story. So, you, you know, in the story, uh, in the book, I talk about like the way that in human intelligence works. I talk about the way that um, we innovate. We, we defer. We eventually got to the point where we couldn't store all of the information in our own heads. And we deferred the computation for figuring things out to the collective. Um, here's a term that I wish I'd put in the book because I thought of it later. Is it's crowd computing. Mm. You know, it's like mm. you, we, we ended up figuring things out by everybody focusing on a narrow part of the system overly specializing, working things out and sharing across. And that's how new innovations are born. And that's why we see simultaneous invention at the same time. Now, Eurasia has a larger collective brain than do North and South America and Africa, probably due to the, you know, the sharing of information across the Silk Road, thanks to latitude, right? It's easy to go east to west, climate stays the same than it is to cross north to south, kind of Jared Diamond. Mm-hmm. Then one tiny quarter, uh, corner of Eurasia, a backwater, in fact, I have this uh, this quote from uh, Cicero writing to his, you know, the Roman um, senator Cicero writing to his friend Atticus, and he says, um, uh, "I don't don't even bother with Britain, right? There's nothing there. You're not gonna find like maybe you'll get some slaves, but they don't know how to write. They don't make music. Like just don't bother, right? That tiny backwater, this outpost of the Roman Empire, eventually finds cheap and available coal under the ground. It's easy. It's close to the surface, and they." create with that they were late to the empire game but they create with that the largest empire the world has ever seen 
to the point where you and I are now conversing in English, mm-hmm. right? And they used that to do terrible things. You know, they used it to outcompete and colonize, you know, the world. They outcompeted civilizations that in previous points in history had greater technological sophistication before the discovery of the industrial, you know, before the industrial revolution. And, and te- you know, like you look at the Yellow River Valley in China, or the Indus Valley, whatever, greater technological sophistication than, than certainly Britain, but even Europe, right? Um, and I, you know, I have this section in the book called uh, uh, Primitive Peoples and Barbarians and Civilized. And I explain this isn't really about the people. It's about the social networks and the information flow. Um, anyway, so this one, this one kind of quarter, it ends up taking over the world. And then you get this great divergence where Europe kind of takes off. And eventually there is a great convergence where the rest of the world, like Asia, for example, start to catch up thanks to things like the shipping container, uh, as I explained in the book. Okay. That's where we are. That's where we have been. Things changed in the 20th century, particularly after the 1970s. And this is partly why I really wanted to get this book out there. So if you look at those, if you, if you buy the story that excess energy, like what you want is a very small energy sector, and then you want all the other stuff that the energy sector is paying for, the vacations, the time with friends, the amazing food, the ability to travel, all of that stuff that's cheap thanks to cheap energy. You want that to be large. You want the energy sector to be small. If you look at the uh, EROI metrics, the energy return on investment metrics, they all look like this. They are collapsing precipitously. So in 1919, I'll give you one example of oil discovery. They all look like this, as I said. In 1919, one barrel of oil found you another 1,000 barrels. Mm -hmm. By 1950, one barrel of oil found you another 100 barrels. By 2010, one barrel of oil found you another five. That means that the excess energy that our civilization, our species has is collapsing on us. The ceiling, if you like, that energy ceiling is falling. And so the space of the possible. So I didn't even say the other laws. The other two laws are the law of cooperation and the law of evolution. The law of cooperation is the scale at which is optimal, like, uh, you know, maximally optimal to cooperate is the scale at which I my return as an individual or as a cell or whatever, you want alignment between all these things, is higher than it would be in a larger organism or organization and uh, larger than it would be in a smaller organization or, or organism, right? So to put it another way, depending on the size of the market, right? Um, if I could start a business and do it all myself and keep 100% of the equity, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. But I can start a better business by working with other people. And the number of people that it's worth bringing on board, the number of, of funders, you know, the, and, and so on, it depends on the size of the market. It depends on the technology. It depends on the multiply. It depends on all those factors. So what cooperation is doing is, is in that space of the possible. But what happens is when the, when the ceiling shrinks or innovation slows down, which is what's happened, our capacity for cooperation begins to shrink too. Hmm. So uh, what happened, economic growth, so the, the correlation between energy access and um, and economic growth is is about 0.7, which means that about 50%. Point, you know, the um, uh, if you if you square that term, 50% of our economic growth is driven by energy access, and the mm-hmm. other 50% is probably innovation. We focus a lot on innovation, but we're going through what's called the great stagnation. Innovation has slowed down, and our energy mm-hmm. technologies haven't really kept up, which means cooperation is collapsing. So there's so much I can say about this. this is why it's, you know this is why it's called a theory of everyone. So there's a couple of things. One sure. is um, imagine that the economic growth rate is like buses coming along, right? And they're coming, um, I don't know, every five minutes. Like people are standing in a queue and y- people are annoyed, right? They're annoyed that some people have these special bus passes that always get them to the front of the line. They're the 1%, right? 
they're annoyed that, you know, some groups, you know, are lobbying for, uh, you know, so that they get all of their people in the front. Maybe they're ethnic groups, maybe they're occupational groups, maybe they're regions of the country. They're, they're supporting their in-group. They're annoyed. But you know what? They're going to mumble and they're going to grumble because a bus is coming in five minutes and they're going to get a seat. But if the rate of buses slows down, it's one every hour, it's one every day. Those same fractures that always existed in a society crack and come apart and you get something more. And that explains, I would say that energy and the falling energy is what explains the rise of the right wing. It explains the increased polarization that we're seeing today. It, it, it explains why society seems like it's coming apart the world over. Hmm. Let, me, and let, so, me, let, me, let me jump in here yeah, real quick. I'm curious yeah. about something. Mm, I, like, I, was, I was wanting to hear where you make the link between energy and cooperation so we can we can kind of stay on that so you you detailed you you kind of traversed the kind of landscape of many things in the in the book so you, you talked about the four laws of energy energy or excuse me four laws of life which are uh energy innovation cooperation and evolution you talked about eroi's and so i want to i want to stay on cooperation and then we can link it and then i do want to ask you about intelligence cuz i i have a I have a bone to pick with you on intelligence. So. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, uh, um, okay, so you must have read uh, Nicola Rehani's uh, uh, Social Instinct, the, the book that she wrote. I did. I wrote her an endorsement, yeah. Two, two years ago, I think now. Fabulous. Yeah. I'm, I'm very um, I'm, I'm friendly with her, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to how she, she gives the, the argument. There's, you mentioned a lot of things there. Ken selection, the grandmother hypothesis is in there. You have uh, reciprocal altruism, interdependence, which I don't think you mentioned, which is also super important. Yeah. The back half of the book, for, for folks, you know, it kind of just starts at the smallest level, how we cooperate within our bodies, with, you know, with family and Ken, and then with other people, and then what that looks like for us as humans. And then that part comes out of her research, I think, with uh, punishment. So I'm interested to hear, because I think you're kind of touching on it on how you're linking with, with energy here, is this idea of when cooperation goes bad. Because we always, so I agree with you, for, for many, for many uh, years, people thought that we just, you know, we just kill each other and we're just terrible to each other and look at all the wars. And that's certainly true. Um, but what is also true is one of the ways in which we've been able, I think, to homo sapiens specifically to survive and thrive is because of cooperation but cooperation has this kind of dark side to it as well where basically you can cooperate to like harm people worse or to manipulate people or to scam them over things like that do you think the we can bring a few things in here the threat of punishment punishment itself these darker sides of cooperation in conjunction with um, more and more energy needed with less returns coming. Do you think those two things are kind of colliding where we're seeing this interplay of maybe some more of the darker sides of cooperation coming out or where it could go wrong or, you know, how we're yeah. so energy dependent where it's kind of breaking down. Could you, could you talk about cooperation and energy in, in kind of that way? Yeah, of course, of course. So, I mean, I've had this discussion uh, with Nicola a few times. Um, so she normally she's at UCL. She's in New Zealand at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, so she, she's very close by. And of course, I read her book. These mechanisms don't explain cooperation. They don't explain the rise in cooperation, which is an entirely different puzzle. Mm -hmm. Like, they explain why you don't defect versus cooperate. They don't explain why you cooperate with family versus friends versus 
anonymous strangers. Mm. The, the, link between, the link between energy and cooperation is that what energy is doing is it's creating something to cooperate toward. Mm-hmm. Like, we only cooperate because the rewards, as I said, per person, per whatever, are higher than mm-hmm. not cooperating. And right. that's the scale that it makes sure. sense to cooperate at. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of these, so you don't need as much punishment when it is in our mutual benefit to work together. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, like I say in the book, like we have cooperated toward our greatest achievements and our worst atrocities, but the puzzle is who do we cooperate with and at what scale? Yeah. Yeah. And so what you need, what you need a mechanism to explain, and it can't be punishment because that's always there. It can't be interdependence because that's always there too. Mm-hmm. You have to explain why you're getting this particular scale of cooperation. Like, why is it that you can work at the, at the level of a nation state or unions of nation states with a common history, you know, rather than kingdoms, princedoms, or local tribes or just family? Like, why are we at that scale and not this scale? So, so, scale, that's what energy so, so scale is the, is it the moderating variable? No, it's the mediating variable. It's what, <laughs> it's variable. It's what, yeah. we're, it's what we're trying to explain, you know, the scale yeah, is yeah. what we're trying to explain. Mm-hmm. And so that's what energy energy is because we, when we can work together. So if there, if let's say you're you're Britain, now mm-hmm. you've got this, you've got factories. Okay, well you need factory workers. Mm-hmm. You're going to need coal miners. Suddenly, I need to educate a bunch of people to work the factories. I need to work with these people. I'm going to have to work with them so that they can go get the coal. I need people to work. You know, if it's oil, you know, I need the pipelines. I need it protected. I need you know to make the workers happy. I, suddenly, I need to cooperate at a much higher scale to use this because I can use this. Mm-hmm. To outcompete, because our story is what humans are competitive, mm-hmm. and we're cooperative, and we cooperate to compete with one another. Mm-hmm. And what matters is the scale at which that happens. So, actually, one of the you know one of the points that I make in the book is, you know, the decline in violence, the fact that we live today in one of the most peaceful mm-hmm. times in history. This is Pinker's Pinker's the, thing, right? He wrote he started yeah, Better yeah, Angels and then Enlightenment right, Now, it, right, 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 right. Yeah, so he, you know, he, there's different explanations for this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people say, you know, if you're Yuval Harari, you might say it's imagination. But you know what? You can imagine a lot of things. Some worlds better than others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're Pinker, you know, he has a bunch of explanations. Some of them, you know, like state capacity. It's like, okay, but why is, how did the state grow, right? Mm-hmm. Or why are we trading with one another rather than working together? Because we do both of those things, right? Mm-hmm. And if you, you know, if you, if you, if you want to say it's enlightenment values, then you need to explain how we are. So like, it's not ideas because in, if you want to say that it's ideas, ideas are like the, they're like genes. They're the fodder for evolution to pick on, pick from, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I've got, you know, like in the book, I, I, um, I've got some stuff from Kant, you know, then Kant gave us these laudable ideas, like freedom is the alone unoriginated birthright of man and belongs to him by the force of his humanity. Amazing stuff. We still believe that today. Many of us do, right? But he also gave us humanity is at its greatest perfection in the race of the whites. Mm-hmm. They're both like enlightenment values. We reject one, you know, we accept the other. And that needs an explanation. Like it can't be just the values. Because if it was obvious which of those was the good one and which of those was the bad one, then it would have been obvious before or it would have been obvious at the time. So mm-hmm. they're not, you know what I mean? They're not like you need some mechanism yeah. for why the circle is expanding. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the argument that I make in the book is that it's energy. That's what's doing it. And as energy collapses, so here's the thing violence has declined because. Energy, thanks to the Industrial Revolution, has allowed us to work in larger groups. And when we work in larger groups, then within those groups, we're not killing each other. But that creates an entirely different dynamic and a completely different prediction about the kind of world we live in today. You know, so, so we have so, a model of this. So, so wait, no, yep. real quick. Let me make, clarify one thing here. 
energy is maybe most salient or most proximate for us, but you're not saying it's the only variable, right? You're saying it's maybe the master variable or the most important one, but it's not the only one. How are you, how much weight are you placing on energy? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a constraining variable, right? So, you know, as I point out, um, Hey, look, you know, there's something called the resource curse. Uh, the democratic Republic of Congo actually has a lot of energy. But mm-hmm. and, and hunter-gatherers walked on fossil fuels for a long time, right? So it's not mm-hmm. in the book. I make fun of. Um, I don't make fun of it. I, you know, I, one of my favorite literary genres, as I say, is the one thing that explains everything. Toti, you know, <laughs> right. got to have a good acronym. Uh-huh. You know, I love these books. I love Guns, Germs, and Steel. You know, Sabians is good. I, I love these. You know, they're great, right? But the world is complicated. It is not. There's never one thing that explains everything. Mm-hmm. Causal arrows fly in multiple directions. They feed back on each other. <laughs> what you need is a system to explain how the pieces connect together, right? Like if I, if someone were to say, well, well, how does a standard model in physics work, or you know, what explain general relativity? These are these are not single explanatory things. There's multiple things going on, and that's mm-hmm. why you know I explain that there's kind of four laws. So in this case. The law of cooperation matters too, right? So it may incentivize mm. higher scales of cooperation, but as we develop new technologies, you can actually do the same with fewer people, which then incentivizes corruption or lower scales of cooperation. Like Putin, as I say in the book, doesn't carry oil fields in his pockets. He is able to control Russian resources with support by oligarchs who then support, have their supporters and their support. It's billionaires supporting millionaires, supporting everyday people in a network of you know, political patronage that is out competing the ability of the population to engage in sufficient collective action to depose them, right? Co- oil companies like Shell and BP are able to go to places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, and they're able to uh, extract resources because they are a cooperative group, shareholders connected to countries and backed by their you know, militaries at the expense and working not with the whole population, but working with a small group of, of elites who are happy to take just a small share of that in order to make themselves wealthier at the expense of a population that can't compete. Mm. But ultimately, for, for humanity, for our species, what matters is energy as a kind of ceiling. But for the longest time, it didn't matter because the ceiling was so high for so long that all that mattered was if it, using it more efficiently, the mm. law of innovation. Mm. And that was what, you know, economics was invented after, yeah. uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution, um, as it is now at least. You know, uh, all of experimental psychology long after, you know, uh, even things like formal education were in place. Um, engineers and economists, were, you're focused on how to do things more efficiently. It's the law of innovation. Mm. But the thing is, the, you know, at the end of the day, there is a limit to efficiency. Mm-hmm. Like, as we all know, it's better to have a great higher income than it is to save more money. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you know, it's better to have more profits than it is to have more savings. It is, at the end of the day, it requires a certain number of joules to heat a building, even if that building is maximally efficient. Mm-hmm. So now it's only now because the energy ceiling is falling that we need to look up, you know, yeah. and go, Oh, actually that matters a lot. Can I, can I just say one more thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. It, it's that. So the difference, so for Pinker, um, you know, things like world war one and world war two are kind of blips, if you mm-hmm. like, right. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, this happened, but you know, it doesn't, it doesn't affect the overall trend, but for our model, you get a different prediction. Those are part of the same process because you're always under threat by lower scales of cooperation, like disease and, you know, and so on. But also when the scale of cooperation goes up, so too does the potential scale of conflict. Hmm. So in other words, the world is, is more peaceful today, but it's actually more dangerous. Hmm. Because if there is another conflagration, it, it'll be disastrous, right? And hmm. because 
because when it, when it was a world where it was in our mutual benefit to work together because energy was such in such surplus, then we did work together. But as that falls on us, you're incentivizing lower and lower scales of cooperation. Within countries, you're getting lower scales appearing and countries are beginning to become more insular. And that means the risk of conflict is greater. So you know that we cooperate toward our greatest achievements and greatest atrocities. Mm -hmm. The atrocity mm -hmm. stuff is, is on the horizon. That's what I want to prevent. That's what I want to try to get people to think about. Yeah, it's, it's a good it's a good framing. I like the framing. I, I think it, it makes a lot of makes a lot of sense. So I want I want to talk about where we're going because that's kind of the second part of the book. Yeah. So maybe we'll just have a long I guess footnote here, and I'll, I'll maybe uh, put some context to this. So you do you do mention about IQ. So obviously there's a there's a kind of rabbit trail we can go down this. So I'll try and keep it kind of just as a footnote. Not, here for the hard not questions, Xavier. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, you. <laughs> You seem to so okay. And on my side, intelligence is one of the most in my in my view, and I think what a lot of the literature shows is intelligence is one of the things that you know sets humans apart at at a such a level. That's not to say other animals are intelligent. They are. There's plenty of animals we know that have uh, good intelligence. Uh, different, um, obviously, with language that makes sets us apart as well, which is you know, kind of connected and loaded with intelligence. I was trying, I couldn't quite get it in the, in the book uh, clearly. That is probably on my comprehension than your writing. So it's, I'll, I'll put it on me. <laughs> so, <very> kind um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you, I mean, I, it's not unexpected, right? Right. But you seem to emphasize a lot of the cultural components of, of IQ and that you, you, you seem to heavily weigh social cultural things on intelligence as opposed to things like G or some of the genetic or biological underpinnings of IQ. So I guess just just say briefly, I guess, you know, how important do you see intelligence is for humans and kind of how do you understand the makeup or the shape of intelligence, um, uh, whether it's cultural and or biological, what's your kind of space there? Yeah. Okay. So intelligence is important for humans, but it's not what you think it is. And the data is tricking you. So okay. let me convince let me, me. Let me convince me. <laughs> let me let me let me let me explain. So, um, where shall I start? Um, all right, let, let's start here. Imagine. Let me, I'm wondering where where I should enter this this moment. So, um, oh, we, can okay. start with start with we can start with G. We can start we can start with G if you want. Okay, let's start with G. Let's start with G. Okay, so you know the fact that things like correlate with one another. So in the book, I explain F. Like I'm like, okay, this is what G is. I mean, you, I don't need to, to go into this, but you know, if you wanted to find like overall fitness, you'd get people to do like beep shuttle run. How you know one rest max? Yeah, you know, how many push-ups can you do? Whatever, and you would find you know probably that there was this overall F and different uh, things loaded differently on F, and F would predict some sports better than it would others. You know, that's what G is. It doesn't tell you whether it's genetic. It just tells you that these features of solving the, the world correlate with one another and they reflect the world as it is today, right? That doesn't, it doesn't tell you anything about whether things are genetic. Um, we know for a fact that a whole bunch of our ability to think is in fact cultural software and not any kind of human, human, you know, human instinct. So take counting. Counting is one of my favorite examples, right? Mm -hmm. Like many societies count one, two, three, many. And our ancestors counted that way too. We needed a software upgrade in order to count the way we do. So we used to use stones and body parts to count, right? 
um, and eventually you put stones and you use them, you press them into clay and now you've got notches, right? You needed objects to do this. And objects make quite obvious the natural numbers, one, two, three, four, five, you know, all of the, all the discrete in, uh, integer natural numbers are, are clear. Mm-hmm. But even then, right, because we didn't have the right metaphor, something like zero wasn't obvious. And it took centuries before zero became a, a number that we recognized because zero stones is nothing and nothing is nothing, right? Mm-hmm. And even once we got to zero, negative numbers, you know, I have this quote from Francis Mazariz, if you would, uh, you know, if you'd let me read it, I find it hilarious. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 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 So he says, um, where is it? Yeah. So, you know, he says, uh, negative numbers darken the very whole doctrines of the equations and make dark of the things which are in their nature excessively obvious and simple. Right. Because he doesn't have the right metaphor. So, you know, it's in the 17th and 18th centuries that we start using number lines. So we move away from objects to movement and position. And now numbers are obvious. You can teach it to even children to the point where they just internalize it. And it's just like they can count. It's very easy. Right. Um, This is something that is delivered to us in our cultural software. And let me show you why the, the data is misleading. So imagine like a psychologist from Venus came down to Earth and gave everyone the Stroop test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm sure your listeners know the Stroop test. You've got colors written in different font colors, you know, so red written in blue or red written in red. And when it matches, it's easy. If your, your job is to say the color and not read the word, mm-hmm. people can't help themselves. They read the word. Mm-hmm. Now, if you didn't know the history of literacy and you didn't know that it was a taught skill, you were a psychologist from Venus just looking at the data. You'd be like, well, color perception is not a, a, an important skill for humans, but reading is definitely innate. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that humans are just born with. You'd be wrong, of course, but you only know that because you know that history. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that there's like a weird people problem, history tells you something else. So, you know, we have these, uh, these experiments conducted by Alexander Luria in 1920 in an education um, uh, revolution that was happening in Uzbekistan. And he starts, he asks a variety of questions that look, that really get at people's thinking, right? Uh, one of the questions he asks is around if P then Q reasoning. Um, so he says, you know, where the, where, where, where it snows, the bears are white in Novaya Zemlya, the, it snows, what color are the bears? Immediately your brain's like white. You know, if I asked my six-year-old, she'd be like white. And when he asked the Uzbeks who'd been to school, they'd be like white. But when he asked the Uzbeks who hadn't been to school, they're like brown. They're like. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I haven't been to Novaya Zemlya. Now, obviously, humans are capable of all, they're capable of counting. They're capable of reasoning in this way. They're capable of these things. But these are these are trained and taught skills. These are part of a, and yet they would appear. You know, like they would be they would be part of the. Um, they are now part of the. They're they're such a part of our society today that they're they're in our they're in our books. They're in our TV shows. They're everywhere. Parents like it's just the baseline of knowledge. That's that is what the Flynn effect really is, right? You can see it in TV shows, by the way, right? Like our parents and grandparents watch TV shows that we're like, what? Even like the lowest brow TV today has more characters, more convoluted storylines, you know, uh, Adam West Batman versus the Dark Knight, you know, uh, I Love Lucy versus Rick and Morty. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. vast difference. Everything has gotten more complicated, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the I'm not, this is not like, I'm not just, I'm not like saying that there are not genetic differences between people. There are, absolutely. And I'm not saying, you know, your prenatal environment or pollution or nutrition or all that stuff doesn't matter for your brain's hardware. It does. But what I'm saying is that human intelligence is in the software, the cultural software. And if you want to understand, in the same way, if you want to understand like pivot tables in Excel or you want to understand chat GPT, 
you need a powerful CPU and you need a powerful GPU, but it's not the, the magic is not in the CPU or the GPU. It's in the software. And you have to understand how that software is written because that software is changing over time. What was valuable once won't be valuable in the future necessarily. Like it used to be that you got to memorize a bunch of stuff. Like my, my middle school teacher was like, hey, you better get good at mental math because you're not going to always carry a calculator in your pocket. Well, buddy, welcome to the iPhone. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know he didn't foresee that, right? Um, so that, that's, that's, that's really what the claim is. So I'm, what I'm saying is that there is no such thing as culture-free intelligence because what makes us so different to other animals is our reliance on software. So if you think, you know, so one of the things I make, a point that I make in the book is sometimes what it takes for science to move forward is to let go of assumptions that seem just so bleedingly obvious, like, of course, right? Like, for example, like, it's pretty clear which you stand that the earth looks flat and there's a sun tracing the sky from east to west, clear as day. Like, why, how could that not be true? But when you let go of that assumption, you make the sun the center and the earth moving around, you know, in, in an elliptical orbit, you get a better model of the solar system. Mm-hmm. It's the same with humans. When you let go of this assumption that actually we're just this brilliant animal and it's at this hardware level, it's our big brains. And you build models, you know, some of this is some of my work, like the cultural brain hypothesis. You actually get a better model that explains far more. And I'll say one more thing in that. You're right. If you think that it is big brains that like big brains are awesome. Everyone should have. Why don't more animals have big brains? Like, why is it that humans have these giant brains and other animals are not? And I'll tell you why. Brains are like 20 times as calorie consuming as muscle tissue. Right. And so if you have a big brain, you have to be able to pay for that big brain. Mm -hmm. You have to pay its energy costs. In other words, an animal wants the smallest brain it can get away with to outcompete predators you know, hunt down food and, you know, out-compete others for mating opportunities. So I I would agree with what you're saying. I mean, mean, I'm I'm very much aligned with the idea that obviously cultural environmental underpinnings are super important. They're super there. I I don't quite, I mean, sure. Yes. The idea that we have as humans of what are shapes and counting objects, if you go all the way back to the Neolithic period. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, sure. I mean, obviously that's fair, but I think you don't need to have, you, you could be in any culture currently. And if someone says, here's a bunch of shapes, make these blocks, put, put, put these blocks together to make the shape. You don't need to have any cultural loading on that. Like you don't need, you could be from Sri Lanka or you could be for the United States. You're going to put blocks together to make a shape. It's the same thing of like, can you, Remember back, you know, six digits. I'm going to read you the numbers and repeat back for me. You know, you don't need cultural loading as much. There certainly are, especially for things like verbal comprehension or comprehension on various measures. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you ask somebody what's a trellis, they're not going to know what the fuck that is, right? Like, I I fully grant you, like, there's many, there's issues with certain measurements or issues with certain tests, and there have been uh, much advancements to try and make them more. Uh, neutral or things like that and obviously people i think over overemphasize raven's progressive matrices which is supposed to be culture free, uh, free um you know but there's some statistical issues with the, the measurement or whatever but i just think in terms of understanding intelligence obviously that if you think of, con- of intelligence as a multi-component process right of solving novel uh of using uh, novel solutions in novel problems or solutions in novel problems I think that that's going to be there currently uh, with with humans. 
for 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 many aspects, right? Nonverbal reasoning, perceptual reasoning, or visual spatial, or you know, processing speed. You're just looking at certain things. I certainly think some aspects of of intelligence are going to be more heavily weighted socially, culturally, environmentally. Absolutely, but I don't think the whole entire concept of all the components of intelligence. There are some that are just going to be listen. Your biology and your genetics is just, you know, it's not, it's not so great for you. And that's fine. But you're, you make up your, your relative strengths and weaknesses maybe are a little bit better than some of the normative ones. That's fine. But I think that that's also true as well. And I don't think you're not saying that. But maybe you just lean a little heavier on the, the cultural loadings. But I'm not I, sure. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I mean the, you know, what you said about, like, there are differences between people. Like, yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that, right? What I'm, what I'm saying is that, like, the what your assumptions about there are these things that humans have they're just anyone in the world no matter where you're from you're going to be able to do this is because you're getting your data from a thoroughly schooled world in which a cultural download has taken place that has given you a bunch of software upgrades that is now your baseline so we have an experiment well i'll tell you some data right so we have okay. an experiment where we're trying to get at this in southern africa okay. there's a natural experiment going on one side of the river uh these people so it's very difficult to get at what school does because Schools everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, literacy rates are crazy high. It's, it's wonderful. You know, like, what is it? Like 200 years ago, 12% of the world could read and write. Today, 12% can't read and write. Right, right, right. Um, and when, most of the time when they can't, when they have not been exposed to any schooling at all, it's because of like war or poverty or like some other insult that is causing, like you can't distinguish that from, you know, any other effects. Yeah. There is, we searched the world for two years to try to find a natural experiment. We found one in Southern Africa. It's a border experiment. Same people, cross and marry. So there's gene flow, culture flow, just an institutional difference. We gave them things like the Ravens colored progressive matrices. The people who are exposed to school, if they're exposed to, let me say it like this, eight-year-olds and 18-year-olds perform identically on it if they're not exposed to school. When they have moderate exposure to school, it's a moderate effect. When it's, they have great exposure to school, it looks more like the West, right? Hmm. These tests are measuring what our schools are giving you, and your data can't distinguish it because you're you're talking about a thoroughly schooled world. And of course, look, look, the more the more the cultural heritability. I don't know if you've read my paper, the cultural evolution of genetic heritability, but it's a it's a BBS paper. Led to lots of fun discussion. Have have a look. This is where I make the case in, in mm-hmm. full throated detail. But we have we have a nice model as well that you can play with and adjust, and you'll see. You know, but. Heritability is a great indication of, um, of equality, really, of, of opportunity, right? The more heritable something is, the more opportunity is. Because, of course, you and I both know that if the world was, like, perfectly equal, same home environment, same access to resources, you know, your mom was eating all the right things when you, she was pregnant, no smoking, all the blah, 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 heritability would be, like, 100% minus, you know, random noise and developmental mm-hmm, variation, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's the thing. Like, you, you, you can't get at this with the current data. You need these kinds of things. And if you want to make a claim about, like, well, there are, if you want to cling to this idea that there's something about intelligence that's not cultural, it's, you know, it's, in the, it's in the kind of lower level processing or something like that. Well, you, well, start looking at chimps and take a look at where the, you know, how much better we are there and show me you know, how you build up from that to what you think is going on. Because like, you know, in our models, what, what, why we have a big brain is because of this cultural evolutionary process that leads to an accumulation of knowledge that can't fit in the brain, which means you want a larger brain to store and manage that information. Mm. And, and something like language is not an explanation. Language is part of the puzzle. Like if I were the only one, if I, you know, you gotta, you gotta start a problem with language, right? Like if I'm the one with the language mutation, 
And I'm like, Xavier, and they're like, why is he making these funny sounds? You don't know my language. You have language only works as a cooperative issue. Like other people have to have it. So you have to have a ratcheting process. And in our models, we have that. The ratcheting process is that as the body of knowledge begins to grow, there's something worth transmitting. Early on, probably fire. And then maybe some early bone and, st- uh, bone and, and, and wooden tools. And then maybe later, you know, uh, stone tools. So as that body of stuff worth transmitting grows, then the channels for transmission are selected, mm. right? So it's like guttural utterances are matched by, by you know, so I, in my story, what, what, I, what, I, what I think happened is that because we were bipedal, it freed up our hands and freeing up our hands it did at least two things. One, it cheapened the cost of tools mm-hmm. because if you're making these tools and you're quadrupedal, you're carrying this big ass rock around everywhere and you don't want to do that, right? right? right. But if you're bipedal, you, carry, you make it and you can afford to spend time sharpening that stone ax because you can take it somewhere else and use it again, mm-hmm. right? The other thing it did is it created another channel for communication. Like even if, you know, I, I did another podcast where it's just pure audio and I'm still waving my hands, you know, it's not just Italian, it's everybody, you know, like, you know, deaf kids are like babbling with their hands. So it opens this pathway for, for supplementing. And then when you get mutations, you get what's called a Baldwinian process where when something can be learned and it's valuable genes that can help you learn it faster are selected. So we literally had changes to our throat that made us uh, more susceptible to choking. I love this line. I'm going to say it. I was very proud of it. We were dying to speak to one another. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> a good line. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, so it's like all of these changes. And so now you have a ratcheting process, but it only makes sense in light of this growing cultural corpus that needs to be transmitted. Mm. And that same selection pressure, by the way, is, is present today. So we maxed out on brain size, right? It became too difficult to birth it. We ate from the tree of knowledge and had the curse of Eve. Get it? Okay. So, you know, we, we had trouble birthing these big brains. If you look at the medical literature today, by the way, the, the predictor for emergency um, cesareans and emergency forceps, right, mm-hmm. is not the size of the baby. It's the size of their head. Yeah, yeah. Once it hits the 85th percentile, it hockey sticks upward, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you begin to, and so then you do other things. You begin to transmit better. So initially it was probably just gaze following. Uh, eventually, you know, social tolerance, language, all of these things. We see it today, right? As the cultural corpus has grown, we're trying to pack more and more into our education systems. We're trying to learn. We spend longer and longer. We have a longer juvenile period and a cultural adolescence just to keep up. So the cultural adolescence is when you can reproduce to when you actually do. Mm. Xavier, I don't want to take you back, but remember when you could reproduce? It took you a little while before then, presumably, <laughs> right? It wasn't 13 or 14 that you had your first kid if you have any, you know? Like we've been delaying that. To the, to the point where now it's like the ability to give birth at an older age that is the selection pressure. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing as the cultural corpus grows, the transmission has to get better, mm-hmm. right? Or you spend longer learning. It's like, that's why, so one of the hallmarks of a periodic table of people, if you like, or an overarching theory is that it connects the seemingly disconnected mm-hmm. into a cohesive theory that doesn't require separate mini explanations for each thing. The whole thing suddenly comes into light. And, and the way I wrote the book, you know, I should say is like, in a world of like fraud everywhere and a literature that God knows no one should trust, um, you can't, I can't, don't believe me because five, you know, five studies said so. They are there. They're in the further readings. Mm-hmm. I, I explain it to you. Like, I want you to understand how this whole thing hangs together. Mm-hmm. And then you can go look at the evidence, but it hangs together. And, and one, one of the claims I make in this book is that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. Like once the tapestry is made obvious, like suddenly it'll, maybe it'll take a while, but it'll churn. And suddenly it'll be like, Oh yeah. 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 Well, I, I, 
I, I'm still not quite convinced on the on the cultural aspect of or, or so much weight, but but you make good arguments, and I I will read I will read I will read the paper, and it would cause you to revamp your whole worldview. So I understand why you're ready. <laughs> no, no, no. But you know what? You're students. <laughs> I think no, no, no. I I would I would certainly I would certainly change my my view on it. I've I just think there is strong. I I know people get really squeamish about you know heritability and genetics. I'm not one of those people, by the way. I like, don't think you are. I, I'm not, one but of I know people. a lot of people are, and <laughs> I'm so not, I'm not. I'm not. I don't really care. I mean, so dude, if, like, if that is good, I, it's yeah. good. I, no, let me let me just say something. Like you know, I explained in the book what it means. Like I explain like genetic differences and what mm-hmm. it means for population. Like like I go everywhere. <laughs> like I'm not. I'm not. Like I honestly, it's an honest appraisal of how I see the world. That's not the reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I'd like to see. I would love to see some strong arguments, but I just don't think that. So the cultural evolution of genetic heritability. One of the points I make is like I'm engaging with your literature. I've incorporated it. It mm-hmm. makes perfect sense in my world. Mm-hmm. You don't even understand this world. You don't understand how broken your worldview is. <laughs> so until that happens, it's a it's a one sided thing. You know? I have I have all my uh, uh, hereditary friends. So I'll I'll say, I'll give them my your. Uh, the email that you have that you got. <laughs> I look. I look forward to all the angry emails. I got. A, I got a few when I wrote that paper, and I, you know, I, I engaged with them. I yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so so for, for a little bit, little bit here, we can talk about the second part of the book. Obviously, many things in the second part of the book. So there's a few things I want to ask about. Okay, all of these could be two hours at, at least on themselves. So so we'll try and get through some of them. I want to I want to ask you about diversity and immigration, wealth and income inequality. And we can talk a little bit about you know, kind of social media or things like that. So let's do let's do immigration globally. I, I I I'm I'm really really interested in this because there's obviously I mean you've been here in the U.S. and there's the very U.S. centric way of talking about immigration, which um, is frustrating because I just don't think anybody's being honest about it. Um, but I do understand a little bit that immigration globally. In Western Europe, in Eastern Europe, um, in parts of Asia, you know, in Africa, it, it just looks a little bit different. But there is a lot that's there. So, so where is your um, kind of model here factoring into how we think about migration, yeah. immigration, things like that? Okay. So, you know, the first thing to say is that you know, if you buy this view that culture, like this cultural software that people are running, incidentally. We even have data, like we have some new data that like visual illusion susceptibility differs by, you know, by cultural. So lo- really low level stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, so when, mo- let me say this, when most animals encounter a new environment, they're forced to genetically adapt, mm-hmm. right? Like faster muscles to outrun predators and, you know, skin color changes for humans uh, to match UV radiation so you don't get cancer from too little vitamin D or skin cancer. And um, that's what most animals end up having to do. Um, and they do some individual learning as well. Like humans kind of culturally evolved and adapted to specific situations. So where they learned how to hunt the local predators. They learned not, they didn't develop like proteins in their body to process the poisonous plants. They learned how to process the plant like cassava, uh, you know, before they cooked it and ate it. Right. So they developed all these technologies. So people around the world do differ from one another. And when most, we are a migratory species, migration is the human story. And when we meet each other, sometimes we cooperate, sometimes we exchange ideas, and sometimes we fight with each other, right? It depends on, on resources and, and, you know, the, there's all kinds of factors. that happen. But we, we face an interesting situation today where uh, people from very different parts of the world with very different ways of viewing the world are living side by side. That is mitigated somewhat by education. Mm. Um, so we have a, a paper under review at the moment where we show that Education makes you kind of more American, actually. It shrinks the cultural distance. Mm. 
relative to, to lower education, right? Because it is this cultural download, right? What, the way I describe this, this challenge is, is as a paradox of diversity. You want to grab this bull by both its horns. And that is that diversity is fuel for innovation for reasons I explained in the book that innovation is primarily driven by recombining ideas. And this gives you new ideas to recombine. Immigrants are the lifeblood. They are America's super serum. But diversity is also divisive by definition, yep. right? Like if we don't speak the same language, like literally if we don't speak the same language, this would be a kind of a boring podcast for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, and, you know, there'd be no exchange of ideas. And I think machine learning is, is going to uh, remove this problem, but whatever for now. Um, there are other things like food preferences. You know, I like sushi. You like schnitzel. Who cares? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, we'll, we'll work it out. We'll have to find somewhere for lunch. I mean, I like both. So. And then there's all these things in between. Sorry? <laughs> I like both. Yeah. Both are great. Yeah, Sushi's I like great. Both, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so like the, but then there's all these things in between, like mm -hmm. um, hierarchy, um, you know, hard work or, uh, you know, the ability to work with the opposite sex, uh, you know, all of these, these subtle things that affect communication and coordination. And so from my perspective, the goal is optimal assimilation, where you're assimilating along the lines that affect coordination and communication, and you're leaving the rest of the stuff alone, like let people you know, live their lives however they see fit, right? All right, so then how do you achieve that in practice? Mm -hmm. how, do, how does one design a sane and sensible immigration policy that, that doesn't create this? Um, there are different models of immigration around the world. And first thing I should say, by the way, is that there's a big difference between immigration to the new world, mm -hmm. nations of immigrants that are building and creating, you know, like America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Like there's a difference between that kind of immigration and Europe where you have pre-existing yeah. monocultural situations. And now you've got immigrants entering that. The, what, yeah. it's, it's not so straightforward that you can just borrow and learn and take from one place and add to the next. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I, I discussed like three major models of multiculturalism, and these are stylized models. Every country has some elements of these, right? Um, but this is often how countries describe themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, one model is uh, what I call the no hyphen model. Uh, and it was after, I, I named it after this debate or a disagreement that happened between Trevor Noah of the, of the Daily Show mm -hmm. and Gerard Arad, the French ambassador. So France is associated with the no hyphen model. So um Trevor, uh, you know, he, he makes a joke that uh, Africa won the World Cup after the French won it because, I don't know, 12 of the players or something were, were of African descent. He's like, you don't get that tan in the, in the south of France. <laughs> and Gerard Arad, you know, the ambassador gets super angry. He's just like, France is a cosmopolitan nation, but roots are an individual identity. We don't have Muslim French and Algerian French. We just have French. Just French. No, no hyphens, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, you hear like a little French accent, like slip it out there. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Um, you know, and so, and so, you know, in practice, of course, it's very hard to do that because you want migrants who actually do want to assimilate. You have to have a welcoming population that brings them into the social fold. Uh, you want to have people coming not in too large numbers because if, otherwise they're going to form enclaves. And, you know, it's difficult to achieve that. And France does not for the most part. Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, it's like brutal colonial history where it, it didn't give people a choice. It tried to suppress their culture. That's mm -hmm. not like the conditions that, you know, you can yeah, have no. a no hyphen model. Mm -hmm. Then you've got like, you know, Canada's mosaic model, sometimes called the salad bowl. Uh, they had to do that. Fr uh, Canada had to do that because they had this French colonies, they got the English colonies. What are we going to do? We're just going to speak both languages. Bon Hello, bonjour. Mm -hmm. You know, classic Canadian, uh, you know, entry into Canada. Um, and so what do they do? They're like, just everybody, just like you work it out. It's going to be a beautiful mosaic. You know, but as I, as I say in the book, like that probably works when there's lots of resources, but mosaics are more fragile than a single pane of glass when put under pressure. Oh, yeah. 
you know. Um, and then they've got the American model, which is the melting pot. The idea is everybody come to America, we're going to melt all into one. Now, like I said, these are idealized, right? Like in reality, uh, you know, some ingredients are going to be stronger flavors than others. You know, some may say America's a little too cheesy, you know, um, then and and then you've got like Unk More Pork. You know, this is Terry Pratchett. He says, uh, Unk More Pork is the melting pot of the world that sometimes runs afoul of pieces that don't quite melt. Right. Um, so you do have this multicultural element that can be a challenge. What I argue is that all of these models fail to account for the fact that a lot of what's going on with people's ability to work together is resources. It's that bus analogy I gave you before. It's the energy. And so when there's plentiful resources, then that, you know, then that is great. But one way to ameliorate the, the, so many of these problems is invest in infrastructure. When, look, when schools and jobs and hospital places are hard to access, People are pissed off at each other anyway. And now when newcomers come in and you're providing them with a bunch of resources, you don't think people are going to be pissed off? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They are. You know? That's not, that's not great. So you have to invest in that infrastructure to match the growing population, and that's a function or whatever. Now, if you are a, um, if you are, you know, from the, from the perspective of the country, if you're trying to create a situation where you have a limited number, there's a limited number of immigrants you're going to lead in, and you're going to select among them, Right? then you want to select the ones that are going to be most successful for you and for the country, especially if you are a, a social welfare state, because those who contribute more are going to, uh, well, they, you know, they help maintain the social welfare state. So in that case, the way to think about immigration is that you are sampling from a distribution because cultures are not homogenous. It's not like all of China is, is, is a certain kind of people and all of America. Like you, you, your American listeners will know that, yeah, of course you can talk about American culture, but the East Coast looks different to the West Coast. Right? I mean, the yeah, what is it? America, the United States is like six different countries. All, you know, you got the South, you have the East Coast. Right, American nation, Albion right, Seed. Right. Yeah, right, yeah right, exactly. Right, right. But, but even, even at a lower level, right? Like Boston looks, uh, where are you, Xavier? Uh, I'm just outside D.C., so. So mid-Atlantic. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. All right. So, you know, you know, DC, like Tri-State, whatever, like New York looks different to Boston. Yeah. And then even within like, you know, even within New York, like different parts of the city are different. Cultures. Long, Long so Island is much different than Manhattan from what I understand. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And even within Manhattan, you know, you know, and so what you're really looking at are like beliefs and behaviors and values and goals and ways of thinking that are distributions. And they overlap to a different degree, and they are you know they're in, they're nested in one another. And when you get immigrants from a country, you are you are sampling from that distribution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If the if if you're if it is like a, a refugee crisis, like a, you know actually people fleeing, then economic framing is the wrong one. You know that's a humanitarian crisis, but you still have to solve the paradox of diversity. It's just you have a harder time with it. But if you can select, you can begin to look at well what. What age, you know, like, so Australia and Canada have, like, points-based systems, 25 to 36 is a sweet spot, where it's like you had some education, and you have a whole lifetime of, like, work ahead of you, that's a good time to get people, you know, highly educated, and also um, fitting into jobs and roles that the country needs. So, the, 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 I call it the umbrella model for a couple of reasons. One is that it resources the umbrella matter, so if, like, people are, like, if the umbrella isn't large enough to keep everyone out of the rain, then people fight over the umbrella and then everyone's out in the ring. Mm -hmm. But you can also think of it as like an umbrella corporation. Like what you're trying to, like if you want to think about company culture, but you also want to make sure you're hiring people that everybody recognizes we need a role. Like we need these people. Like we yeah. need more hairdressers. Mm -hmm. We need more fruit pickers. We need more accountants, engineers, whatever. We, mm -hmm. When everybody recognizes, they're less resentful. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, the closest country that comes to this is Australia. 
has lots of problems, doesn't process refugees fast enough, does some horrendous things, but it's the closest that comes to this umbrella model, but no country really does. Mm. But I think the way to think about this is to take culture seriously. Think about it as this kind of sampling problem and think about it as balancing these kind of, you know, fiscal, uh, fiscal responsibilities against kind of social cohesion. And it's on both sides. It's about a population that welcomes newcomers. So under what conditions are people more likely to be welcomed? And under what conditions are they more likely to be resented? And thinking carefully about that, because otherwise, when you're naive about these things, you're like Germany during the 2015 migration crisis, yeah, which yeah. incidentally is probably the, one of the first um, uh, climate change uh, created uh, migration crises that, at, at, in the Western world, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, like Angela Merkel was like, uh, what is it, wir fahren das, you know, it's like, we can do this. Um, and then and then later on, you know, uh, I think the second command was just like, we, we underestimated what this was about, mm -hmm. right? Or you're Sweden, you know, a lot of, you know, I, I talked to like mm -hmm. leaders in a lot of countries yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're like, I, Sweden, they're, they're like, they're a wonderful people. Um, but we, <laughs> culture does matter. It is a real thing. And that's a controversial thing to say, but, but this is not, so my, my, my real fear here, my real fear here is that people go, okay, well that means we want only culturally close people. And that's like a natural, it's the way that companies are like, you know, we just want people kind of like us. Like, you know, we don't want, we want diversity in the sense like, we want people with different melanin levels and some women, but they got to, you know, it's more like me. Mm -hmm. And that's an easy solution and it's a solution. But the, both the most innovative teams and the least innovative teams are diverse. Mm -hmm. It only makes sense when that diversity can work together. So there's an opportunity when you have greater diversity coming in, but insofar as you can maintain those, um, that, that cohesion. So I, I tell a story, uh, Xavier. Uh, this is a true story. So my wife used to work in, uh, she's a volunteer in refugee resettlement in Australia. Mm. So Australia has things like the uh, um, uh, Australian Co Cultural Orientation Program. It's like a five-day program mm. before refugees even arrive. So they understand what kind of resources they're going to get, how to catch public transport, banking, the laws of the land, and how to make friends, what's appropriate, inappropriate. It's like a, a crash course in how to be an Aussie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and once you get there, once you get there, you know, it's like, you got to swear a lot. You got to, sorry. You know, it's like, you know, once you... Once, <laughs> um, once you get there there's a lot of resources sent your way right so they get people with like similar cultural backgrounds or uh mm. people who had come before to teach you about how to cook the local foods in your cuisine um you know how what what's appropriate and inappropriate. like there's a way to kind of like on it's like onboarding employees you're like yeah, onboarding yeah, yeah. newcomers yeah mm -hmm. but they recognize non-negotiable so she remembers the story about there was this guy who came in and um he didn't want to talk. So there was at the time, there was only like female volunteers and he didn't want to talk to her because she's a woman. He came from a place that, that was, you know, okay. And so he just, he just sat there. She's like, I'm the only one who can help you, man. Like just, and she just sat there for hours mm. and then he left mm. and then he came back the next day and he sat there for hours and he left and he came back the third day and he begrudgingly took her assistance. And now many countries would be like, that was culturally insensitive of you. Like you should have got him a man. Right. But you know, you got it. You got it. Like, Maybe, maybe, maybe your culture is like, you know, that's, we, we accommodate that. Okay. But it's not good for social cohesion. Like there's some baseline norms mm -hmm. that a, every country has to decide for themselves what they want to enforce mm -hmm. as, because remember laws are hardened cultural norms. They are resting on invisible pillars. Yeah. And just as much as it can be difficult to take institutions from one place and transport them to another when the norms are missing. Right, like Liberia has America's institutions, but is not as successful as America. Mm -hmm. Papua New Guinea has Australia and Britain's institutions, but is not as successful. In the same way, the norms going in the other direction, mm -hmm. there can be a mismatch, and you have to assimilate people along 
some basics like rule of law, for example, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's I'm, that, that's enough to get me in trouble. Let's yeah, leave. It yeah, there. no, no, no. I mean, I don't, I don't. I think that's the. I think that is that's a that's a bigger conversation that I think needs to be had. And like you said, you know, the, there are certain countries that are a little bit more homogenized. When you were talking, I was thinking about Japan. They do it very differently. Um, obviously, though, in a homogenized country like Sweden or or Finland or Denmark, they've had different struggles with this. I do think it looks a little bit different for a country like the United States or maybe even Canada or something. But I've been do very successful. Theoretically, sort of a version of this onboarding is appropriate, but trying to kind of nationally have that conversation. You know, I mean, at least here yeah. in the U.S., Look, I, mean, need, I can, I can need, already hear the conversation. No, I can already, I can already hear that pushback. You know why? <laughs> but I agree with you. But I agree with you. I agree with you. No, but, but let me let me tell you. Let me tell you why. It's it's because it's good for migrants and locals. Like we have to be able to work with one another. We have to be able to talk to one another, and this ensures that people because people come over and they don't have the success that they anticipated, and part of that is like that cultural gap, like language programs, for example. Right, one of the easiest, lowest hanging fruit for helping yeah. people economically integrate at a minimum and then socially integrate because it's hard to be friends with people that you can't speak to. Right. Right. I mean, I, I would say this is for me in my, in my view, uh, the reason why immigration is always an issue, not just in the U S but around the world is because I see it as it's, it's, it's a, I think of an analogy of like a coin on one side of the coin, you have immigration and on the other side of the coin, you have ideas of nationalism or, or patriotism, whatever you want. And I think if you have a, a healthy type of nationalism where you say, look, these are our norms, these are our cultures, these are our things that we do, this is what, you know, language we speak, food we eat. Yes, regionally or geographically, it's gonna, there's variants, but generally, this is the Australian way, the Canadian way, the American way, whatever that looks like. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, make, I mean, can already hear people listening to this. That doesn't, I'm not saying that the American way is the white way. I think it's a variety of ways. It's white, black, native, Latin, Asian, right? There's a, there's a way, but we do have things with all of those races or ethnicities that separate us from England, right? So like there is an American way and that doesn't just equal white. That said, you have to say, look, if you're going to come from um, Yemen, there's a different way that the United States does things than in Yemen. It's, it's not better. It's not worse. It's yeah. just different. And here's how we do this. Yeah. But, I, but I think, again, people are, are you know, already getting real tense hearing me say that or like, oh, my gosh, this is not the way. To, this is xenophobic. And I don't think any of those things. I think you want all sorts of folks, not just the lawyers yeah. and doctors. You do want other folks to come and do that where there's value in certain types of work where you can contribute, but you have to have certain kind of baseline. I think an, a type of onboarding of, of sorts for every country with yeah. that has to deal with lots of migration is, is yeah. needed. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and I, look, I, th- I don't think it needs to be like so you know, paternalistic in that there are some mm-hmm. things, like we got to speak the same language, man. Like we have to. That's right. like the most minimum baseline. But apart from that, like, it is just about, like, people talking to one another, negotiating these, these norms, right? Like, figuring out, like, and, and part of it is, like, the numbers people come in. Like, you don't want enclaves of people. You know, you yeah. prefer people to, like, you know, like, it's like, you know, in the, in the kid literature, you know, it's like when, if, if you're a kid, you're at school, and you like Pokemon, you find other kids who like Pokemon, even if they're a different ethnicity. 
But if you've got yeah. a large number of co-ethnic people, now you got you can match on a whole bunch of things apart from Pokemon, and you get more segregation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you know you want to you want to try to find ways of getting people to 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 work with one another and and talk to one another. And by the way, I should say America does this really well because of this long run history of migration. So there's a section in my book about why Americans smile so much and have such a focus on emotions. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if your neighbor doesn't speak your language is from a different place, you have to be explicit about those norms. Mm-hmm. You have to be explicit in your communication. And emotion is one way to do it. If I'm happy, you want to know I'm happy. Mm-hmm. If you're Japan, you can be more muted. Everybody knows if you're happy because of the context. <laughs> right, right. You know? Right, right. So, right. so there's, a whole, there's a whole bunch of this. I, you know, I encourage people to read. Before you, before you get mad at me about anything <laughs> I just said, read the book, see what I said, and then get mad at me. You know, get mad at me what about I actually said, not what you think I that's, said. That's <laughs> totally fair, yes. Maybe we can give just a small, just kind of a brief uh, uh, off-ramp here. I, I did want to hit on, like, obviously it's a big topic as well, but wealth, income, inequality. So maybe just you, oh, yeah, the, yeah. the key point there, again, huge topic, but the key point that I took from that was you have this idea of meritocracy to mediocrity. So, so talk about this kind of concept of how we're trying to globally yeah. or for c- certain countries figure this kind of way out with uh, inequality. Yeah. So, you know, have you ever heard the phrase like uh, talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not strictly true, man. Like talent is not equally distributed. Oh, no, I've heard the saying. No, I don't think it's true. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. But, but, you know, opportunity definitely isn't right. Like, so although mm-hmm. talent is not equally distributed, opportunity definitely isn't. And mm-hmm. I think we can at least agree that like an ideal world, let's say, is one where you are not limited by the circumstances of your birth. Right, mm-hmm. like that. Every, we, what we do every generation is we get our best and brightest, mm-hmm. and we give them the opportunity to push our species forward, and we give everyone else the opportunity to back whoever they want to have their voices heard. To have you know, and so to get that, you need you know, you need you need resources, you need uh, access to, to to whatever. And so there are certain policies that entrench things and shrink the the opportunities over time. And when that happens, people start reaching out for other ways to equalize that, as I said, lead us from meritocracy to mediocrity. Mm. You know, they, they like, well, we should get rid of standardized testing, you know, even though standardized testing is one of the, the best ways for a poor kid to demonstrate how clever they are. Mm. Right. And that's why, you know, it's like. Even without test preparation, many kids are able to kind of demonstrate this and you can account for, uh, you know, wealth in, 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 in adjusting scores, for example. Right. You can think about things like that. You don't have to to do in this gross way we we know there's all kinds of problems with affirmative action this is a conversation that's that's currently being uh mm-hmm. well, literally litigated in the united mm-hmm, states mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. um so so I, I i basically argue that that this comes back to like how we think about even something like redistribution um i explained that the amount of inequality wealth inequality is way bigger than people think it is mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. unimaginably so yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's not necessarily a problem what matters is how that wealth inequality comes about mm. And whether it reflects contributions and whether it reflects what, what money really is, it's a lean on energy. What money really is, is it's a share in our goods and services. And the more money you have, the more you can direct the, our energy budget to whatever you think is important. And so what you want to be doing is taxing unproductive money. So don't ta- like what in, in my world, this sounds, this sounds really radical, but if you read it, you'll understand the difference between a utopia and a better place is the acceptance of constraints. Mm. And I, I, I lay out pathways that show us from where we are today, how we can relax some constraints and get closer to where we ought to be. So, for example, transitioning to a land value tax for a multitude of reasons 
and dropping income and sales and you know capital gains taxes would result in you know because if you're if you're if you're literally like rent seeking you're you're engaging in wealth appropriation rather than wealth creation what you want people is to move their asset allocations toward things that generate wealth that increase the space of the possible that raise that energy ceiling or or lower the energy floor you know the innovation uh, innovation efficiency floor and increase the space of possible so that we have more opportunities for everyone um th- it's hard for me to kind of compress this big argument into a short sp- uh, like a, a very short space of time mm-hmm. um but i think that's that's the goal and what i lay out is how we might we might get there and i get into things like startup cities as a way to kind of mm-hmm. get past nation states mm-hmm. um programmable politics as a potential possibility in the future the role of ai in mm-hmm. you know in, in equalizing some of these things mm-hmm. um there's a, there's there's two. I want to talk to you for another two no, hours. I know, so I know, I know. This is not there's not there's not enough time. But I mean, I, I mean, again, there's I, I mean, so many other questions I had. But I, I think that what's good though is that people have a sense, hopefully, that there's there's a lot of ways in which you know the book touches it. And I, I find I found like I mean, obviously, it's a book, right? But so it really does all go together. Go is that you get the first part, and when you get that in you, then the it gives this really nice kind of backdrop or kind of context for all the other stuff, all the controversial stuff in the back half of the book. <laughs> so again, let, <laughs> not read let, the second half first, read the, <laughs> don't read the second half first. Yeah. Read it in order. Uh, the, the last question I have for you is, you know, after all these topics and all these things and, and many, we didn't cover, you know, what do you think for just the average listener that's listening in, obviously, you know, read the book and stuff, but, Beyond that, you know, what do you think are effective ways in which we can, you know, pragmatically understand and, and, and make changes in the world? Uh, I mean, you know, as I, as I say at the end of the book, like, um, change has always happened because an easily understood idea was, you know, a small group of people with that easily understood idea were pushing for that change. And so what I hope is, like, obviously, if you read this book, it will point you to different things, like things you can really advocate for that will leave this world a better place. So, you know, land value taxes. Um, because here's, here's what I think. I think people can feel in their bones that something is broken in our world, that something is wrong right now. Mm-hmm. And people, I mean, as a population, people are kind of scrambling. Like they're like, we should, you know, we need to tax billionaires. We need to, you know, we need to close the borders. We need to open the borders. We need to like, you know, they're, they're like just reaching for things. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm hoping is that when you see who we are, how we got here and where we're, where we could go then you realize okay that doesn't you know you can separate the trying to turn lead into gold stuff like the, the the nonsense from like actually that won't work for this reason but actually maybe this other thing will mm-hmm. and all of these people who are entrenched in this perspective they're wrong for this and you can articulate exactly why they're wrong and of course you know i don't mind being wrong i personally don't mind being wrong that's how we learn i'm i'm happy for people to be like oh you're totally wrong about this and for here whatever reason I send it to a lot of experts. If you read the endorsements, you'll see it's like every discipline under the sun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, so I feel comfortable about the facts on the ground, but like I would want people to engage with this, to argue over it, to discuss, send me questions, emails. Like mm-hmm. I, I want to start a conversation. Mm-hmm. Like this book was not, it's not me like writing a good book because I'm like, oh, I should write a book. This is really me trying to get a message out there mm-hmm. that I think will be good for people's own lives because they can begin to apply it to make themselves more creative and more successful and, and their kids in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, it definitely made me, it pushed me and made me think about a lot of different things. The book is called A Theory of Everyone, The New Science of Who We Are, How We Got Here and Where We're Going. Uh, this is through MIT Press. 
it's out in the UK and Australia now, and it's out in uh, the United yeah. States on on uh, October thirtieth, thirty first. Actually, it, it, it's uh, Basic Books Hashet in the UK and Australia. Uh, ba- Press oh. in the US. Oh, okay, yeah, it's in the US. Just want to acknowledge all, all my publishers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the book's great. I hope people uh, check it out. Um, is there anywhere? I know you're doing a bunch of things, but is there is there any particular place that you? I mean, aside from the book, that you want to point people to? A paper, you know, website anywhere where you're at. Anything you want to point people to? Yeah, so you can you can you can find you know how to buy the book at ethereofeveryone.com, and you can find me by googling me or you know michael.mithrakrishnan.com. I try to keep my website mostly up to date. Oh, follow me on Twitter, smash that subscribe, <laughs> ring that bell, whatever you know. Find me on social media wherever you are. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thanks Michael, this was so much fun. I I really 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 did appreciate it, and uh, we'll have to we'll have to do this again uh, another time as well. Yeah, no, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.